Hey everyone, it's Amber Love, and um, this is going to be the first panel that I recorded at New York Comic Con for this year. I attended the show for two days, and I couldn't record all of the panels because uh, one of them in particular, just audio recording, would not have worked well. So this panel is called Science in Fiction, and it was a fantastic panel. It was a lot of fun. So here's the thing. Don't do what I do. Basically, I get too afraid of failing to try things, and in this case, um, I didn't start recording right away because I just assumed it wouldn't work. I sort of set myself up to fail. I was in the second to the last row, and I just didn't bother taking out the recorder for a while because I thought, you know what, this is just going to suck. And you actually can hear, um, it's a little bit quieter. So when I finally took it out and, and hit record, I just went, you know, tested it to play it back. And you actually can hear the speakers pretty well. You might have to jack up your volume a bit during this episode. But it was uh, a really interesting panel because uh, these the books that these authors write are all pretty different. And when you think of science fiction, I think it's such a big, huge genre that, you know, that people just might automatically only think of one thing that's in their head, like they might only think about Star Trek. Um, but it, in this case, there's a, an author who has like a very post-apocalyptic setting, and then there's um, a, another one where it goes back to Victorian England. So it's really interesting to see the diversity in that, and also the diversity in the characters that they talk about. And um, so the, the panelists for this were... A.G. Riddle, whose book, uh, Departure, he talks about. Mindy McGinnis, whose most recent book is A Madness So Discreet. And she goes into talking about lobotomies and all of her research on um, actual anatomy and uh, medical procedures. And uh, there's a really interesting part of that where <laughs> she spent like a year and a half doing research and it only came to two paragraphs of her final book. Jordan Stratford, who I've interviewed on this show before, and he was the main reason that I actually went to this panel. His most recent book is The Case of the Missing Moonstone, and that, I think, is book six or seven of his Wollstonecraft series. And Wollstonecraft was unbelievable. I loved it. It's about um, this fictionalized version where uh, a young Ada Lovelace, before she's Ada Lovelace, she's Ada Byron, and uh, she becomes best friends with Mary Shelley as little girls. They open up a detective agency and they use all kinds of like science and engineering and logic and stuff to solve crimes. It is phenomenal. There was also Ian McDonald, whose uh, recent book is called Luna New Moon, Barry Liga from After the Red. And um, at one point, the moderators switched because uh, Peter Klein's had the wrong time. So eventually he gets there and takes over moderating. So um, it, like I said, the, the recording might be a little bit low, so you might have to boost this up a bit. But I loved this discussion. I will say that it was so popular that the queue to get in was massive. And they had it scheduled in a small room, a very small room. So half of the people had to be turned away. So hopefully that sort of feedback gets back to the New York Comic Con Read Pop organizers. And the next time they try to schedule something with science and fiction together, they understand how popular it is and put them in an appropriate room because it was a tiny room. It was horribly hot, horribly, horribly hot. Like I don't know how I stayed awake. Um, not as bad as FlameCon. FlameCon was off the charts with <laughs> its lack of air conditioning. So, um, you know, enjoy this. And I will, of course, have show notes with the names of all of these speakers. So you can go, you know, search for them and find them. And then go back and listen to my past interviews with Jordan Stratford. And let me know what you think. Thanks for listening. actually work. It's a, basically, it's a, a kind of a ratchet work actually work. Um, but mesmerism also uh, appears in the first book, and we know that Ada 
lifelong fascination with mesmerism. In fact, she wrote a, a book about it. And this was considered to be legitimate science at the time. They knew that you could magnetize water and use that magnetic water for therapeutic purposes. There, and they had science behind, that backed it up at the time until they had more science that failed to back it up and we can back that theory away. So um, I'm not only introducing scientific ideas, but I'm uh, introducing a kind of a hermeneutic where um, science is kind of what you've got to work with at the time and something, a better idea will come along and your ideas are disposable and that that's okay. In fact, that's what makes it cool is the fact that we can only ever know so much before we learn something that completely dismantles whatever we were sure of five minutes ago. Um, and it makes, from a character standpoint, it makes the world kind of an unsteady and scary space, but it also makes it a very promising space. You don't always know what's going on and that theme progresses throughout the series. And we're talking about book seven now in terms of the map. So everything just gets weirder same kind of weirdness that you experience if you worked in the lab all the time. So one of the things I've been hearing uh, from all of you is there's both a, I mean, and th this is true in any speculative fiction, there's that what if moment that is kind of driving like how the story took place, whether it's what if, you know, there were lobotomies in the 1800s, what if uh, there was this rain in this future that was uh, destroying everything or like a plane crashes in the future or whatever. Um, is that, and I'm gonna kind of keep this more open now, a little bit looser, but um, is that really like your starting point when you're writing or was it more, like so did you start with a, a scientific principle in mind or did you start more with like, I have this character that I really wanna focus on um, Let's see where I can put them. Let's see what she can do, what he's capable of, et cetera. So I'm just gonna kind of throw that out there. You can dive in. Solar system science fiction. Um, Gary Wolf said, you know, there's lots of books about the new solar system, the new Mars. I'd love to see a new moon story about a new moon. No, I've always loved moon babies. And I filed that. <laughs> except, except for Larry Blackwood, who was magnificent, because he always was. And then the thing I did, and that just got me thinking, hmm, family drama, isn't that great? You know, um, people love family dramas. It's a thing that hasn't really been done much in science fiction. We tend to go for, you know, the, uh, either noir or thrillers, but, but, you know, but family dramas really have a, have a place there. And I kind of thought, and it went, bing, another place in my brain. And then a few days later, I was uh, those two books went pink, went pink together, and there it was, Dallas on the moon, and it's as simple as that. Uh, creativity, it's all around little crap you file away. Some people are just very good at putting those bits of random crap together and making them into something else. Every, everything is a map.
Sounds like fun. I'll just do that. Is the deadliest thing an author can think. <laughs> it does because you think this will be so easy and so much fun, and then the next thing you know, you're on page 5,024, and the book is not over. Um, but uh, for me, you know, th this was interesting because a lot, you know most of my books come about in certain ways, but this is the first time one came, literally came to me, because Peter and, and Rob, who is the, the other co-author, who was uh, Peter's producing partner at the time. They sort of came up with the general framework, and they came to me and said, "Doesn't this sound cool? You know, let, let, let's make a book." And I was like, "Well, guys, this isn't really a story. You've got a couple characters, and you've sort of got this idea for a world, but that's not a story. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's a movie, but it's not a story." <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and Barry Laggage, I said, um, but uh, so I, I thought about it a lot. And I was trying to think of ways to make it a little different from sort of other post-apocalyptic stories because I've heard there are some out there. And, <laughs> and what, I, what I hit on was, and again, it's just this serendipity that, that seems to, you know, that, that Ian talked about. You know, I was reading at the time a book called A World Lit Only by Fire by a guy named William Manchester, which is sort of an accounting of how the Dark Ages became the Renaissance. And there's a lot of quibbles with his scholarship, and people always yell at me whenever I bring up this book. It doesn't matter if what he's saying is true or not. What matters is what it, how it clicked for me. One of the things he talks about is how you know dark ages were so long that that there was no generational memory of a better time. You know, if you were a poor peasant farmer, your father was a poor peasant farmer, and his father and his father going all the way back, nobody could remember a time when you weren't a peasant farmer. So there was no point trying to be anything but a peasant farmer because you couldn't even imagine that there was anything else. And the more I thought about that, I thought, oh, this book isn't post-apocalyptic. This is the dark ages, but in the future. And that was that was how the book sort of clicked for me. It's, you know, my editor was like, oh, do they have the internet? And I'm like, well, no, they have something called the Wikinet, which, think about Wiki for a second. It's like the internet, but anybody can edit anything on it. So imagine how useful that is. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> and, and, and. So all these things just sort of clicked into place as a result. And it was just, it was really, you know, I, I, it was, I was given pieces from different puzzles that didn't fit together. And then I had to sort of get my chisel and my file and my rasp and make them fit together. And it was, it was a really interesting intellectual exercise. And it was nothing I'd ever had to do before in any book. And our moderator has transmogrified. <laughs> Alakazam! So this panel does not start at 545 like my notes say. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Peter Klein. I'm moderating, but they were pretty much doing it themselves so far. Um, I'm up for listening. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and now that we're caught up, um, I actually wanted to ask, talking about science, because you've all mentioned this one way or another, uh, scientific research that all of us know as authors, research is very easily a black hole that you fall down and, you know, one minute you're just looking to see <laughs> 
point, like, did you, especially, okay, when in some cases, like you're saying, you, you were making up stuff, you know, how far do you go with research, generally? Do you do just a draft and not worry about it and try and figure out some stuff ahead of time? Demonstration later. Even if it went wrong, you know, if it went wrong, it wouldn't really matter. So I want to see this. I know, and they are really proud of them. But it doesn't really require a lot of skill, is the thing. Um, but, you know, I, I learned so much about lobotomies, and I read thousands of pages about lobotomies, and also trepanning, uh, which, if you're familiar, is where you punch a hole in the skull so that the brain can be swelled. I'm game, by the way. Oh, we can trep it? But yeah. People do that still, like now. They use drills. There's YouTube. A, there's a penguin yeah. party after, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, great. Yes, absolutely. It's amazing. People use it all the time. Odysseus knew all about it. But yeah, it was it was totally it was a thing that people would punch holes in their skulls if they were swelling. So their brains could come out like a mushroom and sit on their head. So I read surgeons' notes from the Civil War about how to trap in. I went to a Revolutionary War reenactment and talked to the guy that was pretending to be a Revolutionary War doctor and asked him to show me how to trap in. And he did it on a melon, and the woman next to me passed out. <laughs> and I was videotaping, and I thought it was, it was the greatest thing ever. So I did all of this. I learned all about trapping, all about lobotomies. And then I was writing the book, and I got to the scene where this was going to be the most critical point for me to know this information. And I wrote my scene, and I was like, that's done. And it was two paragraphs. <laughs> it was two paragraphs. And let me tell you, you could use it. Don't. But you could use it for a step-by-step -step on doing a lobotomy. But I had researched. I had put a year and a half of my life into learning so much, and I wrote two paragraphs. So you can you can really overstep. I know so much about lobotomies now. It's amazing. <laughs> I'm very proud. I'm very proud. I have to use it now. I mean that's the thing. I wrote my two paras and I'm like, well, now what? All of her books will now have lobotomies. Yeah, they will. <laughs> I'm actually writing a book titled Lobotomy because I'm like I have to use it now. I'm not actually. <laughs> I'm gonna try to get away with that in my next kids book. A lobotomy. Yeah. I my editor's in the room, so I'm just going to look for her reaction. <laughs> yeah, um, when, you're, when you write a research heavy book, you throw away 80% of the research. You never use it. Unless you do the research, you won't know which 80% you don't need to use in the first place. Um, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's, um, it, is, it, it, it is a wonderful fun black hole.
It's like it's like trepanning when you watch it. There are, there, are such, there are bits you come across that you love so much you would do anything to get rid of them. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of ran into um, the basics where I've got uh, a, a character who's the world's first computer programmer. So how do you actually start from uh, a mechanical phenomena of something that's going to tick or can you take something as abstract as an event or the weather or mood or physical evidence gathered scene or an observation and translate that from its very initial instance into a tick or a non-tick and what does that look like and so I ended up having uh, creating all these different models for what is the, what would be the most primitive computer that you could actually build and I created a system where I have spindles with holes in them software for extrapolating that patterns doesn't actually exist for well past uh, even when we get well into a, a, a electronic computing and well past that. So you know, we could count data for a long time before we actually knew what the hell we were looking at. And so then to scale that back into something that can, can click with the, the mind uh, a very bright and inquisitive 11 year old girl um, was definitely some point I just have to kind of back off and say computer science exists just bear with me it's a thing it really it really is a thing and it's possible and so it does become there's a degree of, of MacGuffin-y that I think you, you have to introduce in fiction otherwise it's like okay kids well let's sit around the campfire we're all going to do comp sci 101 <laughs> and six months later they all walk around and for jobs at Microsoft, but they haven't finished your novel yet, and um, uh, you're not really doing the reader any favors at that point. Sometimes you just have to kind of go and say, trust me, this sounds sounds very convincing at the time. That's actually a great point. When do, when do all of you find that point where, okay, these things, we need to have hard science. We need to have numbers, we need to have math, we need things we can back up. And then the soft science stuff where it's like, just trust me, Since neutrons are neutral by definition, I don't think I can reverse the polarity. But anyway, I, I mean, it's, I, I, it's very technical. Insert dabble here. Um, I, I've always felt like you sort of, it, 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 it's sort of like tricking children into getting into your van. Um, you want to give them enough candy to get them closer, and then once they're in, that's when you slam the door, and then you don't have to worry about the candy anymore. And, um, but I mean, you, that, that sort of, you know, you, you want to treat the reader that way. 
you know, I wrote serial killer books. I, you, know, um, you really want to. You really want to. Uh, you you, you want to. You're, you're seducing the reader. You're telling the reader, look at this, and the reader goes, oh yeah, that makes sense. And you're telling the reader, look at this, and they go, that makes sense. And look at this, that makes sense. And you backed all that stuff up, and then you go, now look at this, and they go, well that. Yeah, okay, all those other things made sense, so I guess this makes sense too. And it's when, when do you, it, it's how you make that transition, how you make that transition over. Um, and, and I mean, honestly, people hate when I say this, but it really, it's one of those things where when you're writing, it becomes a gut feeling, I think. I don't think that there's a, a matrix or a schedule or, or, or a graph or anything like that that shows you, okay, after four paragraphs of, of actual scientific information, the reader is mentally prepared you know, for, for this, or is primed for this. You just go with your gut. And for me, it usually becomes when I'm tired of going from my notes to the keyboard. You know, it's like, okay, I'm tired of looking this shit up. I'm just gonna go with it now, and hopefully it'll work. Yeah, I think that, yeah, the first draft is always kind of instinct, and there is this kind of propensity to put all the research in there, because you did the work, and you know, you love you the research. And yeah, yeah. yeah. sense that it actually removes mystery from the equation and it moves um, that it, it just shatters that suspension of disbelief. I call it the midichlorian problem. <laughs>
like, how do you get, okay, so there's 80% of your body is water. How? How do we get that out? And so I did some Googling. <laughs> and I had, so no one should ever look, I really was paranoid. I'm like, no one should ever work at the, look at the history on my computer because they're going to be like, wow. <laughs> but, you know, usually you do a Google search and you have four or five pages to scroll through. You have to sort out your information. I Googled, how do you get water out of the human body? It's like, Google is like, I don't know. <laughs> and I'm like, oh man. Okay, so you, it's in there, you can get it out, you can play with that. So I have some, a friend that is a surgeon, and I came up with a method. And I said, Lydia, would this work? She emailed me back and she said, um, yeah, technically that would work. And I was like, awesome, thanks man. And so people, whenever, when I do things, people that have read the second book, they say, Mindy, I have to ask you, where did you come up with this thing in the book? Like, you know, when that happened. And I said, oh, I made that up. And I came out of my head. And they were like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's way worse. It's like worse than when you start talking about man. Yeah. They're very, they're scared. It's weird. So, but would it actually work? I don't know. Um, I, I hope I'm never in a situation where I have to find out, but yeah, if supposedly, according to you know the technical, yes, it would. We could do that after the lobotomy. Yeah, I got all <laughs> I have lists. Patients are very cooperative at that point. Yeah, I have like a check mark, like I have lists with check mark boxes, so I mean. If you look under your seats, you'll find a number. <laughs> Why do you think it is? Everyone here has a really great science-based book set in the past, the future. Um, you get other books like uh, the one that pops to mind is The Martian by Andy Weir, which, I mean, the guy has six pages on how to grow potatoes, you know, and here's another four pages on how we make water. Why is it that some writers get away with this, that we can have all our scientific stuff, and other writers have three paragraphs of exposition and they leave right there? What do you, what do you think is the mis or a mistake? I think in the case of The Martian, it comes down to voice. I really do. I mean, Mark Watley's voice, right, I mean, the opening line of that book, I'm pretty much fucked. Right, right from the opening line of that book, he's got you with an interesting character and a, and a great voice. And so, yeah, when he's, you know, describing the quite dry and boring process of growing potatoes in Martian soil, which I mean dry and boring in terms of the actual steps taken, not the fact that, holy crap, this guy just grew potatoes on Mars. Um, when he's doing that, you're, you're along for the ride because it's Mark Watley and Mark Watley's fun and he's thinking about Aquaman and, you know, and, and it's interesting. And I think, I, I really think that's what it comes down to for the most part. Yeah, I think a really good writer can write about anything and hold your interest. Uh, Devil in the White City by Eric Larson is about America's first serial killer, but it's also about the Chicago World's Fair. And there's a huge amount of that book dedicated to the different plants that were grown for the Chicago World's Fair, how they built the, fair. How they built the Ferris wheel. <laughs> Uh, talking about how it's really hard to build tall buildings in Chicago because of the silt. And, and you're just like, oh, and you learn a lot and you're fascinated. And you go and you tell people, you're like, I just read this great book about silt. And they're just like, but Devil in the White City is amazing. Yeah, exactly.
slightly different than writing uh, because every detail has to be a telling detail, otherwise it, it, it's like being terribly boring to all of us scientists, we want all that information, it's just the detail for detail's sake. I think in the kind of stuff we do, every detail has to earn its place and tell you either something about the character it's related to, the story as it unfolds, or the world in which those characters are, are living. Um, in this one, science fiction people, and most, most sci-fi to clothes suck, they're really sucking. <laughs> if you can print your own clothes, why not have it from one of the more elegant decades, the 1950s? So the women's dresses are all like, so all the women look like, uh, if you, you know, look like Grace Kelly in this, but the men have impeccable suits with, um, with, with, with pockets where, yeah, because you can print your own clothes, so why not make something that looks good, why not something that looks sucky? That tells you something about the way, you know, what the character's values are, you know, the, their personal style and, what the, and how the world works, all in one kind of fairly small, simple detail, and I think this is fine. So that detail earns its place, tells about the world, tells about the characters, all in one story. And, and it's also a great detail because you're just building off the technology we all know. Yeah. We understand, I mean, immediately what 3D printing is, you're, you're using it in a whole new way we've never seen it before. Chekhov has this wonderful bit that, that if there's a, a, a gun in the first scene, the gun has to go off before the end of the play. <laughs> if there's a phaser in the first scene. <laughs> so, uh, you know, when I crafted this book, I actually crafted this, this series, and so I have all these guns lying around I have to, that, that don't go off in the first book. You know, everybody walks past this umbrella stand or whatever it is, and, and uh, then you get these emotes from editing. It's like nothing happens as an umbrella stand. If you mention it three times, it just, just leaves. <laughs> I have a plan for it. And it's here to the end of the second book or the end of the third book meeting. And it's like, but there's a, can we get rid of that umbrella stand? You mentioned it. It's like, just leaves. <laughs> so I don't write back. I just write forward. And so it's like, okay, I just need a bigger idea to encompass the thing. If I go down a, some kind of rabbit hole, um, I'll find a rabbit. That's it. If you paint yourself into a corner, then you just need a sledgehammer or some kind of, you know, dynamite ex machina. That's um, that's that's part of it. I I'm not a fan of of unwriting or going back. It's just like you know, just grab them and go. say it had to be coherent. <laughs> also, you know, that's that's why there are editors. Honestly, you know, you can sometimes you just like, okay, well, I'm just balls out and I'm going to go down off this crazy direction. And, you know, sometimes you can get away with it. You can actually surprise yourself by the time that you get to chapter 15. You go, this actually all kind of lined up really well. It's like I planned it all out. And your editor says, no, that didn't. That, what are you talking about? Um, and, you know, the global find your place, and 30 seconds later, the problem is solved. So, um, 
that's not so much for the writing process is rewriting. I think you know, your writing is rewriting, of course, we all know this, but um, yeah, I don't, don't I would, as advice, as much as any writer can ever give another writer advice, because you know, you're the one who has to live with the book in your head, um, just go forward. Don't go backwards, just go forward.
might not be a novelist. You might be a short story writer or a novella writer or a screenplay writer. There's nothing wrong with any of that. Uh, you know, it's not just how do I make it longer? It's, it, you know, you said, what if you have a lot of important scenes? Every scene should be important. If you don't break up the book and go, well, today I'm going to write an important scene, tomorrow I'll write some of the ones that really don't matter. They all matter. And if you have enough of them to fill 40 pages, your story is 40 pages long. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with yourself up, don't go, it's supposed to be 300 pages. No, it's supposed to be exactly as long as it's supposed to be. It's like my high school Spanish teacher used to say, when we would say, how long do our essays have to be? She would say, make it like a skirt, long enough to cover the topic, but short enough to be interesting. everyone, it's Amber. I hope that you enjoyed listening to the Science in Fiction panel from New York Comic Con 2015. And don't forget that you can sponsor the show on the website by going to patreon.com slash amberunmasked. And you can sponsor the show for as little as a dollar per week. And it's really, really helpful for me if you do that. So thanks for listening and thanks for sponsoring the show. And it makes sure that I get to places like New York Comic Con in the future.